This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power. You guys can be seated. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51 this morning. We are, if you're new here, we are in the midst of a series called Summer in the Psalms, and we're looking at some different Psalms this summer. And Psalm 51 is a Psalm of David, and it is David's prayer of confession and repentance. When we think about the Psalms, the psalmists often wrote out of the experiences of their own lives, and yet they also wrote with, with God's people in mind, with, with, with us in mind, because they knew that the things that they were going through, other people were going to face in the future. And so part of our, our ongoing life with the Lord as believers is confession and repentance. That should really be a part of our daily walk with the Lord. A part of our daily prayer should be uh, confession and, and, and turning from, from sin. And we see a, a, a beautiful example of that in this psalm. It's about coming home. So let's look at it together. Psalm 51 and follow along in your copy of God's word as we look at it. David says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, so that you are right when you pass sentence, you are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would lock our attention to, to you, to your word, to your spirit as you open the word to us. We pray that you would uh, rid us of any, any distraction 
that we might have and that we would, would give these minutes just completely over to you. And we pray that you would do a supernatural work and open the eyes of our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. Give us just a fresh glimpse of your holiness, your grace, and a greater love for Jesus and what he has done for us. And make us more in love with the gospel and desiring to, to, to share the gospel with others. Because it's only through the gospel that we are able to approach you. It's only through the gospel that sinners like you can be brought near to a holy God like yourself. Only because of your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Shortly before his death in 1669, Rembrandt painted this masterpiece. It's the return of the prodigal son. And if you look at the detailing of this painting, Rembrandt is picturing the scene from Luke 15 when the son returns to his father. And you can, you can look and you can see on the son who's kneeling, you can see the, the mud from the pig pen. You can see that he's dressed in, in rags. And you look at the father and you can see his, his hands placed tenderly on the, the shoulder and the back of his son. It's a, it's, it's a picture of, of, of God's amazing grace toward sinners, which is exactly what we see in Psalm 51. Because Psalm 51 is David returning home, coming home after his sin. And we see in Psalm 51 the depth of our sin and also the depth of God's mercy, which is deeper and greater than our sin. You know, John Newton shortly before he died, reflecting back on his life. And if you know the story of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, you know before he became a Christian, he was a slave trader. In fact, Newton, after he became a a pastor and turned away from that life, became a believer, uh, William Cooper, who wrote uh, uh, There is a Fountain that we just sung a moment ago. Uh, they They were very close friends. William Cooper was in the same church as John Newton and William Wilberforce, the member of parliament who, who led uh, the, the abolition of the slave trade in Great Britain. So both jo- John Newton, William Cooper, and William Wilberforce were all brothers in Christ, all joined together in this effort to end the evil of, of, of slavery. But before he became a believer, Newton himself had been a slave trader and seen the horrors of that. And later in life, as he was reflecting back on the course of his life and the amazing grace that he experienced and all that God had done for him, Newton said this, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. 
So let's begin this morning by talking about the background of Psalm 51. You know, we don't know the background of all 150 uh, psalms, but some of them we know very specifically what the background was, and that's the case with Psalm 51. And when you look in your Bibles, right before verse 1, it says, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So, This was a time in David's life when his troops had gone off to war, and typically King David would have been with them, but he was not with them on this occasion. Now, you know, when you if you know anything about David's life, it's not that he lacked personal courage. There were many, many times in David's life when he put himself in harm's way on the battlefield and displayed incredible courage. But this was a time in David's life when he had grown spiritually complacent, spiritually soft. And so rather than being with his troops, he was back in Jerusalem and it was there that he made a catastrophically bad decision, a horrible decision that would have ramifications and ripple effects that would impact so many people. So what happens is that uh, David, back in Jerusalem, sees this woman, Bathsheba. He's overcome with lust. There's adultery that takes place. There is a pregnancy that comes from that. But all of that came, all of that stemmed from David, the spiritual state that David had allowed his life to get in. He had drifted. He had drifted spiritually. He had become spiritually complacent. Now, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 give us the background to this story. And let's look at 2 Samuel 11 and verse two. It says, one evening David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. Now notice here how the writer just sort of masterfully gives the picture here of luxury and softness, right? It says David got up from his bed. He he strolled around on the roof of his palace. I mean, it, it, just the whole picture here is a picture of, of luxury and, and softness. And see, that's a picture of David's spiritual state at this point as well. He's grown spiritually soft and complacent. And he's not spiritually alert And that leads to this catastrophically bad decision. And see, there's a lesson here for us because nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I'm gonna make a decision today that is gonna be so terrible that it's gonna rip my family apart. Nobody does that. That's not how it happens. What happens is that we allow our spiritual lives to go on autopilot and we become complacent, and we're not sharp, we lose our sharpness, and we're not spiritually alert, and our lives have grown spiritually soft, and we've drifted. And what happens is that we've put ourselves in a position to fail. We've put ourselves in a position to be vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy and to temptation. 
And so what happens in the story is that David summons Bathsheba to come. He sends messengers to, to, go, to go get her. That's, that's an overlooked part of this story because we focus a lot of times just on the adultery, but, but there was also an abuse of power here. David is the king, and, and he, he summons this woman to come. And, and so there's a pregnancy, and David knows not only is she married, she is married to one of his own soldiers who was out there on the battlefield fighting while David remained in Jerusalem. In fact, her husband, Uriah, was not only one of David's soldiers, he was one of David's best soldiers. He was one of David's most loyal soldiers. And he's out there putting his life in harm's way at the very moment that David is committing adultery with his wife. When David discovers that there's a, a pregnancy, he tries to cover it up. And the first way that he tries to cover it up is that he summons Uriah to come home from the battlefield. He says, hey, you need to take a rest. Come home, go, 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 to, your, go to your own house and be with your wife and sleep in your own bed and, and all of that because he thinks that, well, Uriah will think that the child is his and we'll cover it up that way. No one will know. But noble Uriah refuses to come home. <laughs> he says, how can I go home? How can I, how can I go and, and sleep in my own bed when soldiers are out there on the battlefield dying? I, I, can't, I can't do it. And so now David is forced to, 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 to the cover-up gets deeper. See, this is how, this is what happens. Sin begets sin. And sin begets deeper sin. It gets worse and worse. Because now David moves from adultery to essentially murder. Because he tells his lead commander, Joab, put Uriah on the front line where he's going to be most exposed and where he will likely be killed. And he is killed. The plan seems to have worked. And so David quickly marries Bathsheba. It seems like everything, the cover-up has been successful. Everything has just been tied up neatly in a bow. And no one will know. Oh, but someone does know. Look at the end of 2 Samuel 11 and verse 27. It says, however, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Enter the prophet Nathan. Nathan, a prophet, walks into David's palace one day and he says, I've got a story to tell. And David says, tell it. And we see it at the beginning of 2 Samuel 12. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her. And she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man 
But the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. Now, just imagine the sheer cruelty and abuse of power in this story. You know, here's this, this poor man. All he has is this one little lamb that's essentially become a, a family pet. And here's this rich dude with scores of flocks and herds. But he doesn't slaughter any of his own. He goes to the poor man's house, gets their pet lamb, and slaughters it for his guest. And King David hears the story and his face is growing flush with anger and outrage. And he's thinking, this cannot happen in Israel. And he says, the man who did this deserves to die. And Nathan looks at him and he says, it's you. You're the man. David is shattered. And it is from this shattering experience that Psalm 51 is written. So the psalm breaks down into three parts and they're easy to follow. We see the appeal, the confession, and the restoration. First of all, the appeal. And we see that in verse one. David says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Notice here, David is not asking for God's justice. He is asking for mercy. You know, when we're growing up and we feel like that somebody has done us wrong on the playground, what do we say? That's not fair, right? We're we're asking for justice, right? Well, I want, I've been done wrong, I wanna be done right. And even as adults, we tend to do the same thing. That's not fair. That's not, I, I deserve better. Friends, what we need to all understand is that if God gave us what we truly deserve, we would all be in hell. The gospel, it's not about justice. It's about mercy. Our salvation is because of God's mercy. Notice at the end of verse one, David says, blot out my rebellion. And the Hebrew here, uh, really for blot out, it it really means the, uh, the erasing of writing from a book. It's the same Hebrew word that Moses uses in Exodus 32, 32. And this is after the people had made the golden calf to worship. And Moses comes before God and he says here, now, now if you would only forgive their sin, But if not, please erase me from the book you have written. Listen, if we got what we deserved, then all of us would be erased from the book of life. But instead, God gave his son who did what? Colossians chapter two and verse 14. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and is taking it away by nailing it to the cross. Instead of being erased ourselves, 
Christ hung on the cross so that our sins could be erased. That's the heart of the gospel. It's about God's, God's mercy toward us. That's what David is appealing for here. Look at verse two. He uses the language of washing, cleansing, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. One of the best books that I've read in the past 10 years is Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken. And it was made into the movie, but the movie did not do it justice at all. It's an amazing story. Louis Zamperini was a, a pilot in World War II. He was shot down by the Japanese over the South Pacific, held as a prisoner of war, brutalized, tortured. His main antagonist was a, a, a Japanese guard that they call the, the bird. And he managed to make it through the war, but suffered from PTSD and, and, and alcoholism. Uh, and in light, his life was coming apart. He had one thing, he had a, a wife who loved him. And they were, their marriage was about to, to come completely undone. They were at wit's end. They lived in Los Angeles. She heard about a young guy who had come and was preaching in a tent that he set up, a young guy named Billy Graham. And she somehow got Louis to, to, to go and he went to, to, to this service and his life was utterly transformed by the Spirit of God. And, and Laura Hillenbrand writes about this conversion in an incredibly beautiful way. And she, she, she talks about the, the fact that he was able to go home and get a night's rest for the first time in years and then the next day. And she says this, in the morning, he woke feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, the bird hadn't come into his dreams. The bird would never come again. Louis dug out the Bible that had been issued to him in the war. He walked to Barnsdall Park where he and Cynthia had gone in better days and where Cynthia had gone alone when he'd been on his benders. He found a spot under a tree, sat down, and began reading. Resting in the shade and the stillness, Louis felt profound peace. When he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make of him. In a single, silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation, softly he wept. The second part of Psalm 51 is David's confession. And we see that in verses three and four. David says, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now David here in saying this is not at all minimizing the sin that he had committed against Bathsheba and Uriah, not at all. What he's saying here is that ultimately all sin is against God. And when we sin against other people, we're really sinning against God. Ultimately, it's all against him. Notice here that, that David says in verse four that he has done this evil in your sight. Remember, remember the lengths that David went to to conceal what was happening, the, the cover-up? Now he understands everything, everything was in the sight of God. 
Everything in our lives is in the sight of God and not only the actions that we take, but the very thoughts that we think, not only the words that we say, but, but the, the thoughts that, that form the words before we even say them. It's all in the sight of God. And David understands that. Note also that David understands that, that, that the sin goes much deeper than the act of sin. Look at what he says in verse five. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. On the second floor, of the Museum of Natural History in DC, there's the largest flawless court, uh, court sphere in the world. It's a little bigger than a basketball. And there is not a blemish on it anywhere. Most people think that human nature is like that. They, they think, sure, I mean, we may mess it up on the outside, and we may do things that kind of, you know, put some mud and some dirt on it or make a mark on it, you know, and we can mess up kind of on the outside, but inside we're still pristine in our basic nature. Well, friends, the Bible tells a very different story than that. What the Bible teaches is that all of us are shot through with sin that there is something twisted and something curved within us and it is there at birth. And that there is a filth that's not just on the exterior that we can kind of clean up and make some cosmetic changes and clean up. No, there is a filth that goes right to the center of our souls. And therefore, the only way to remedy that is to get a new heart. It's not a matter of making cosmetic exterior changes. We need new hearts. And fortunately, we have a God who gives new hearts. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The third thing that we see here is restoration. Restoration, true restoration. Verse six, David says, surely you desire integrity in the inner self. You teach me wisdom deep within. You know, over the past few years, there have been some high-profile guys, and pastors, different ministry leaders that have um, gotten into, you know, different kinds of, uh, of immorality and so forth, and, 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 and then they're sort of restored. And it's obvious in some of those situations that they were, they were restored too quickly. But you know what? True restoration it's not restoration to a position. True restoration is a restoration of the heart. That's what David is saying here. You desire integrity in the inner self. Integrity is when the outside matches the inside. When there's a wholeness to our lives. It's who you are when no one's looking. 
You teach me wisdom deep within. Again, look at what he says in verse 10. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, this is, this is heart language. Verse 12, David prays, restore the joy of your salvation to me. David had sought satisfaction and joy in the wrong things, which is ultimately what all sin is. That's what it is. It's us thinking that we can find satisfaction and joy outside of God and outside of his will. It's Jeremiah 2.13. God says, for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Psalm 51 is David turning from the toxic, dribbling stream of a cracked cistern and turning back to the fountain of living water. Coming home. Again, verse, verse 13 David says, then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Note that when God truly does a work in our lives, there's a concern for other people. You show me a, a quote conversion that does not result in increased love and compassion and concern for other people and I'll show you a false conversion. Because when the Spirit of God truly deals with someone's life, when there's a new heart, when there's true repentance, that is the fruit of that. One of the fruits of that is always going to be increased love for other people, compassion for other people, concern for other people, concern not only for the practical needs of their lives, but concern for their spiritual condition as well. One of the marks that you're growing in Christ is that your love for other people is increasing. That there's more compassion. There's, there's a heart desire to, to help meet the needs of other people. Practical needs in their lives but also, also a concern for where they are spiritually a concern for your lost family members, your lost friends, your lost neighbors. There's an increased concern for other people and where they are. That's what we see here in verse 13. David says, out of, out of my own renewal, and I wanna hoard this, I want, I want what you're doing in my life to be spread. I want your name to be honored. I want other people to know you. Verses 16 and 17. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You were not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. Now David here is not saying that the offerings are not important. The offerings are commanded. What David is saying here is that apart from a heart that truly loves God, the offering is meaningless. 
Now he wants his offerings to be meaningful, right? And so that's why we see at the end of the, of the psalm here, what does he say? He says, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Why? Because they're flowing out of a life that is given to you. See, Paul says in Romans 12, to offer your bodies, your whole selves as living sacrifices because ultimately what the Lord desires is not just what you can give. He wants you. He wants you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy towards sinners like us. It's only by the, the perfect righteousness of your son that we can come before a holy God like you. We thank you that in your love for us that you gave your son who lived the perfect life that we could never live and satisfied every just demand of your law and who died the death we should have died in our place so that we could be reconciled to you, so that our sin debt could be erased and we wouldn't be erased ourselves because of our sin. Father, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know Christ. I pray that you would work a miracle in their life and that you would grant them repentance and faith. Father, we pray for ourselves as people of God. We pray that our lives would be spiritually alert so that terrible decisions are not made. Lord, we pray that we would be on guard, that we would guard our hearts each and every day, that we would stay close to you so that we're not set up for sin, so that we're not uh, spiritually complacent. And so Lord, keep us, keep us spiritually alert, keep us close to you. And if we've been drifting at all, may this be a time of repentance right now. Lord, we, we pray that you would give us a greater love for Jesus and a greater desire to share the gospel with other people. This message of, of reconciliation. Lord, we live, we live in a world that so needs to hear that and so needs to see that demonstrated in our lives. Make the psalm a reality to us, we pray in Jesus' name. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.